Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. This week, I talk with Kyung-A Park, who leads environmental markets and innovation in the newly formed Sustainable Finance Group at Goldman Sachs. We're very lucky to also have Kyung-A serving on the board of RFF. As the episode title suggests, our conversation focuses on the potential to catalyze markets towards further investments in environmentally beneficial products and services. We'll talk about the definition of environmental markets and why they matter in driving change at the scales needed. Stay with us. Kyung-A, thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. It's really nice to talk to you. Well, I'm happy to be here and thank you for inviting me. So, Kyung-A, you used to be the head of environmental markets at Goldman Sachs. You're now leading environmental markets and innovation in the newly formed Sustainable Finance Group at Goldman Sachs. Um, I wondered if I could kick off this podcast by asking you to define some terms for us, uh, particularly the terms environmental markets and potentially as related to sustainable finance. Um, I realize those probably have a lot of nuances and mean different things to different people, but how do you define those in your work at Goldman Sachs? Sure. Um, So let me start with more the conventional definition of environmental markets, which as the nomenclature suggests, it's about harnessing the power of the markets, um, where in sort of simplified uh, terms, the economic value is attributed to products and services, um, and capital flows based on the value, really to enable um, better conservation and stewardship of ecosystems and the environment. Uh, for example, you can put a value on the services that forests provide, whether it's carbon sequestration or biodiversity that really creates incentives to conserve the forest rather than cutting them down. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for Goldman mm-hmm. Sachs, uh, traditionally our environmental markets has really been about harnessing the breadth of our core competencies as a global financial institution, uh, certainly um, on the capital dimensions of financing and investments, but also advisory, risk management, uh, you know, our asset management business to really help address critical environmental issues, including on climate change. And of course, in a way that enables us to better serve our clients and generate long-term value for our investors. You know, for example, um, you know, we have a goal to mobilize $150 billion in financing and investment to scale clean energy around the world, which uh, is an important goal in that um, when you think about climate change, energy is the largest contributor towards greenhouse gas emissions. It's also capital intensive. Uh, and bringing it down in terms of the cost curve has been a very important part of uh, the scale-up of renewable energy in addressing climate change. In terms of sustainable finance, the recent evolution, which is an incredibly exciting one, is in addition to uh, climate change and environment, the business thesis more broader in sustainability has become incredibly compelling, including on inclusive growth. And we've been doing a lot on that front as well, whether it's an underserved markets uh, with our open investment group, or investing in women-led businesses and investment managers with Launcher GS, and also through our asset management business, where we now have um, $35 billion of assets under supervision that are specifically dedicated to ESG, Environment, Social Governance, and Impact Strategies. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind the formation of the Sustainable Finance Group is really to bring together these key pillars and the breadth of our capabilities as a firm and turbocharge ability to serve our clients um, and capture growth and really drive innovation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Can I just ask one more definitional question as we as we get started here? So you mentioned a term that is new to me, actually, something that I hadn't heard, but I imagine is is um, continuing to grow in importance, and that's this concept of inclusive growth. So that uh, the inclusivity here refers to underserved, sort of historically underserved populations. Well, inclusive growth is broader in that it's everything from certainly underserved markets. It's also about inclusion mm-hmm. on gender and diversity issues. But it's also things like how do we help access to healthcare, you know, access to financial services, as well as access to education. And so it's a very broad um, part of what we can do in terms of both capturing the growth, uh, the secular growth that we're actually seeing, uh, helping our clients who are also inclu- increasingly focused um, on these initiatives and agenda, and then making sure that we play a meaningful part in terms of addressing uh, key societal issues. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, before I dive into a few more specifics related to environmental markets, I wanted to ask, so how did you personally start working in this area? How did this become a focus of your career uh, in, in financial markets? Sure. So I started working in environmental markets now more than a decade ago. Um, and before that, um, I've been more of a traditional investment banker within Goldman Sachs. Very much loved my job with clients and transactions. Um, but, you know, frankly, when I had my first child and now I'm blessed with two children, you know, I wanted to make the time away from home more impactful, given, um, at least for me personally, the opportunity cost of taking that time away for work uh, mm-hmm. went up. Uh, fortunately, uh, Goldman Sachs had established um, our environmental policy framework in late 2005 and set up a new team to help implement the roadmap from that framework. Um, and I got the opportunity to join the team, and it's been a, you know, an incredibly rewarding journey in, in many ways. Um, and mm-hmm. perhaps, uh, you know, just to give you a personal tidbit, um, perhaps it was always meant to be given um, I happen to be born on Arbor Day in South Korea, ah. <laughs> a day okay. when um, the government really mobilized the public to help plant trees and reforest their country after many yeah. decades of degradation. So there you go. Hmm. All right. It was destiny then. <laughs> um, well, great. So let's let's talk a little bit more about the topic at hand. Um and you mentioned earlier the the power of the markets um, to address climate change and other environmental and sustainable challenges. So, can you say a little bit more about why it's in why, in your view, it's so critical to sort of harness that power to address some of these challenges? Yeah. So, let me step back and give you a sense for some of the numbers out there in terms of what needs to be mobilized in the capital front to address some of the key challenges. So on mm-hmm. so climate change, an often quoted number is a trillion dollars per year, just on the clean energy transition that is needed to meet some of our key climate objectives. And then mm-hmm. when you think about the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which entail 17 key goals uh, to really drive sustainable development globally, uh, the number that is often quoted is several times bigger than this, so somewhere around the domain of five to seven trillion per year. Now, that number feels um, very daunting, and uh, public sector can't meet this alone, particularly given some of the budgetary constraints, but also um, the political you know, inertia uh, that we have um, and the polarized environment mm-hmm. um, that uh, some of the countries live in. So when you, when you step back and think about what needs to happen, the good news is that there is actually significant capital out there, um, and more mm-hmm. of it is getting harnessed for sustainability. Um, If you kind of think about the public capital markets in particular, which is incredibly deep and liquid, some of the numbers out there show that there's north of $150 trillion of capital outstanding. 
And there are mm -hmm. um, a lot more financial tools that are unlocking greater capital flow from that market for green, sustainable investments. You mm -hmm. also have institutional investors. These are some of the sovereign wealth funds, um, the public pension funds um, that hold uh, somewhere around $100 trillion of assets and increasingly taking into consideration environmental and social uh, factors as well. And then, mm -hmm. importantly, companies. These are strategic capital investments, companies who are investing in clean energy and other sustainability solutions, both as a way to de-risk but more and more so to capture growth and innovation. So that, that's mm -hmm. the reason why we definitely need to obviously harness the power of the markets and very much uh, the private sector. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I do recognize that, or I've, I've certainly heard, that getting, getting that private capital to flow into solutions, um, you know, you just illuminated a number of ways in which uh, companies, sovereign wealth funds can and do do that. And yet it does seem like it's been a challenge to really get private capital to flow at the level needed as well. So um, what are some of the innovative mechanisms, the innovative finance mechanisms that you know of that are helping to um, to ease that flow of private capital for some of these solutions? Are there any examples you can yeah, I mean, the exciting thing is in the past decade that I've been doing this work, there's an incredible amount of innovation that is happening broadly defined, but certainly on the financial and um, capital market domain. And let me give you um, mm -hmm. a couple of examples of this. And let me start with what's called uh, fixed income, which tends to be more the debt side um, of the ledger. Uh, and there's been a lot okay. of focus and momentum around what is called green bonds. And these are very much um, no different than conventional bonds and very kind of simple plain vanilla instruments uh, where the risk and the return profile uh, from the same issuer is exactly the same, whether it's green or conventional. The only real main, main difference being that you have a dedicated use of proceeds towards environmentally beneficial purposes and having um, reporting and transparency around the actual allocation of those proceeds and the impact it's having. Mm -hmm. So this, this market initially started um, in sort of 2007, 2008 with um, multilateral development banks, namely the World Bank and the European Investment Bank. But it really came into the market in earnest in sort of 2013 and 14 when a set of principles were developed by a number of banks, which also included Goldman. And what's been exciting to see is that today, uh, that market is, um, you know, last year almost 200 billion. This year, I think we're on the trajectory and momentum to well exceed this. And it ha now has a diversity of issuers, certainly multilateral, multilateral development banks, but also companies, municipalities, sovereigns, and across many different geographies. And then mm -hmm. the instruments have gone from not only green bonds, but social bonds, where it's about, again, inclusive growth and social purposes and then sustainability bonds, which combines both the green and the social. So there's a lot going on in that market. And just going one layer deeper, in addition to kind of the plain vanilla corporate level or issuer level use of proceeds bonds, we've been also seeing things like securitization, uh, project level bonds and performance linkages. And securitization is an example, uh, just to um, explain it a little bit further. It's really aggregating smaller um, investments and projects into larger bonds uh, that are um, non-recourse to the issuer and then gets placed into the capital markets. Um, and we happened to do the first uh, solar securitization in the world in 2013 in Japan. 
Um, and one of the benefits has been that it's provided renewable developers with an alternative funding that tends to be longer term um, mm -hmm. uh, and away mm -hmm. from traditional bank markets, a diversified form of funding. So a good example of how you can open up greater capital flows. Hmm. Okay. I, I, I wanted to ask one follow-up question about, you mentioned um, that there's a, a more robust system of, for lack of a better term, sort of monitoring and verification for the use of the proceeds. So who actually does that monitoring and verification? Who's checking to make sure that the use of proceeds is in fact meeting the goals laid out in these green or social or sustainable sustainability bonds? Yeah, sure. So the issuer obviously um, is ultimately accountable and given some of the reputational considerations around if you don't deliver, um, then obviously your reputation around sustainability um, isn't great. Uh, first and foremost, the issuer you know, owns and takes the responsibility for this. Uh, but the market has evolved where you are seeing more independent um, opinions and now the vast majority of green social sustainability bonds have these opinions associated with them both at the front end when you actually do the green bonds and launch it into the market uh, and then on the back end once the actual allocations happen at a minimum typically every year issuers report through an impact reporting or the traditional sustainability reporting, including a green or a social sustainability section on the bonds allocation. And then some will also get that verified and assured um, by you know, auditors um, or other uh, verifiers as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there, there sounds like there's a very robust system for um, for ensuring that those proceeds are used as, as anticipated. Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say um, very robust in that, you know, it, okay. it is robust for sure, certainly relative to where we sure. were in the early stages of the market. But we also have to keep in mind that 200 billion sounds like a large number. Um, but compared to the full breadth of the fixed income market, it's a small drop in the bucket. And so we're still at the very early stages of that market development and we need to do more. So along those lines, in terms of thinking about where markets have failed, particularly in this area of environment, climate change, what would you say to folks who are asking, you know, don't we actually need to do a lot more at a much quicker pace than markets have been able to achieve so far? Look, I think that's a fair observation or comment. Um, and certainly when we published Environmental Policy Framework in 2005, one of the key things that we did up front is to recognize the urgency and the scale of the climate change challenge um, and the need for us to collectively do more and for us to also, as a firm uh, global financial institution, to step up and hence why we established a very um, critical roadmap on that front. Um, but just stepping back, uh, when you think about what markets are about and how markets and capital flows, so at the basis of you know, the Finance 101 is that markets are highly efficient and uh, therefore capital flows to where there's the most optimized um, return for the risk that underlies it. Mm -hmm. And um, when you think about the climate equation, that optimal risk return has to be in favor of low carbon um, investments, uh, as well as more broadly in environment, things like conservation and other environmental beneficial solutions. And mm -hmm. at, the, at the crux of this, um, when you think about, again, the value and putting an economic value to it, you need pricing signals that reflect the true costs or the risk inherent um, in that system and what you're trying to actually mobilize capital for. And also importantly, taking that into account in a way that values this today, not way into the future, given that there is a lot of discounting when you think about financial values of future 
you know, cash flow economic, um, you know, generation. Now, specific to um, uh, the climate change issue, you know, emitting greenhouse gases is still very much free in many economies um, around the world. And even where there is pricing, you pay very little for it. And in some markets, there are still subsidies on fossil-based energy, so you actually have the perverse signal. Right. Um, and, and even on, you know, when you just coming back to the environmental markets topic more broadly, you know, forest and other environmental resources has a sort of a classic tragedy of the commons where individuals' economic, to, economic incentive to exploit and consume tends to outweigh the broader benefit um, of protecting and conservation. Of course, Amazon forest fires is a prime example of it that mm. is getting a lot of attention today. Sure. And I wanted to ask a little bit more. You mentioned that, you know, getting prices right is important. Um, certainly, there have been moments in time when at the federal level, and I think currently at the state level, the U.S. has considered ways to put a price on carbon. Well, how do you see the role of policy uh, in in sort of complementing market mechanisms, in perhaps giving some of these signals that that markets might not necessarily adopt for themselves? Can you speak to that a little bit? So policy absolutely has to play a more meaningful role and work in concert to help address these issues and provide the right market signal. And again, there's been a lot of focus. I was the increasing focus, um, even here in the U.S., around the question of putting a price on the externality of carbon, but also, um, again, just stepping back and, and pulling this conversation back to the broad environmental market as well. Um, you know, putting value on other aspects of environment, whether it's things like ecosystem services, uh, mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, what nature provides, right? And there's a lot of other focus and efforts around this as well. And RFF have done some terrific work, both in the carbon pricing uh, question, as well as more broadly around some of the values ascribed to ecosystem services. Now, having said that, um, one of the things um, that I think is important to recognize is putting a price on carbon is not a panacea. In some mm -hmm. cases, uh, the pricing signals are muted. As we said earlier, um, there are many places that do have carbon pricing, but they tend to be much lower and therefore are mm -hmm. muted. But also, even mm -hmm. if you uh, say that you could increase that significantly, uh, there are areas where there are market barriers or behavioral barriers, and energy efficiency mm -hmm. is usually used as a very good example of this, where for a number of reasons, um, you know, carbon pricing alone is not going to get a lot of ener energy efficiency going, and therefore, you know, many governments have put standards or mandates in place. Mm -hmm. I think the other area where I feel very passionate about, and this is in, in part um, driven by my focus on innovation, is when we think about the climate challenge and again, the urgency, the magnitude, renewable energy um, has to be a very key component of it, as well as energy efficiency and transport solutions. Mm -hmm. But we need a lot more, right? And so this is where increasing investments in R&D in aspects like carbon capture and storage where private sector is less well equipped to um, singularly address this, um, you know, has to come into play and where governments traditionally, particularly in the U.S., has played a meaningful role, for example, through efforts like the Department of Energy ARPA-E type programs, and where government can really play um, a critical role. So I, I, I do always enjoy talking about innovation because it feels like a, a particularly optimistic part of the conversation around climate change. And sort of thinking about that, that optimism, maybe a good note a good question to close on is, I, I, I guess I wanted to ask, what are some other ways to harness markets and sort of accelerate momentum to get some of these technologies into the marketplace to, and 
just to address these environmental challenges? Yeah, there's a whole range of examples, but in the interest of time, let me highlight just a couple. And um, one of the most important parts of the market and private sector leadership is, as I said earlier, companies and what they're doing around their, their own business model and how they're allocating capital and the innovation that they're bringing. So we're seeing a number of um, corporates, an increasing number of them actually, uh, setting up venture capital arms or actually partnering with um, venture capital uh, firms in actually investing in disrupted technology and mm-hmm. combining this with a deep operating bench and market access to be able to help bring those startup technologies quickly into the market and scale, help scale the companies. And in particular in clean tech uh, and renewables and um, even on clean transportation, uh, we are seeing a large number of examples of those that are being quite successful. Um, we are also seeing more kind of partnerships between, you know, between um, what was traditionally viewed as competitors. And so it's really about cooperating and people call it the competition model, um, where uh, competitors in industry are coming together to really join forces to invest in innovative technologies and really be able to drive, again, scale and market access. Um, and in the oil and gas industry, uh, there are a number of them, but the oil and gas climate initiative is a particular one that is also very much focused on um, carbon capture and sequestration. Mm-hmm. And I also think about innovation from the dimension of other business models um, where you know companies are now looking at ways to uh, strategically um, reposition their business, uh, whether it's for risk uh, purposes and de-risking the business from areas that can get increasingly constrained, but also as an opportunity to capture growth and innovation. Um, and again, as an example, in the oil and gas sector, which has been really interesting, you know, they're now going into renewable energy, um, electric charging station, energy storage, and in some cases, even retail utilities, so the whole electrification, which mm-hmm. is traditionally the domain of traditional utilities who've also been at the forefront in some of these business model uh, changes. And so it's an incredibly exciting time uh, for innovation. Um, and then just one last thing I'd, I'd mention is there is a significant role for uh, non-government organizations to play in terms of catalyzing um, more innovation and pooling um, and bringing together greater action. Now, Aria 100 is a great example of this, um, where they brought many, many companies together to commit to 100% renewable energy. I think there's now close to 200 companies, um, and that's galvanizing a significant amount of renewable energy globally. And companies at the forefront of this are not just talking about their own operation, but now also working with the entire supply chain. And so this is an incredibly important part of the um, innovation equation and one that is really driving a significant amount of growth in the renewable energy scale-up. Well, that is that is a relatively optimistic note to end on. And um, so that's great. Thank you for sharing those insights with us. So, Kyungan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with us about this topic. I, I know it's a complicated one. I think the world of finance continues to um, to evolve rapidly, and sort of the layperson is constantly learning how to keep up with the, the various changes. But it's great to hear from one of the experts about how things are evolving on the environmental market side. And I guess I just wanted to close out our podcast with our, our regular closing feature, Top of the Stack, and ask you uh, to recommend more good content, either on this topic or on sort of another related topic of energy, environment, natural resource issues um, that's on the top of your stack, something that you'd recommend to our listeners. 
Yeah, so um, first and foremost, um, RFF does terrific work. And between this podcast and the various publications that RFF does, it certainly is on top of my staff. Oh, well, thanks. Um, you know, <laughs> thanks, so, lovely. So it's terrific, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to be on the podcast. Um, but just what, one book over the summer um, that I've been reading, uh, which uh, even for me, who's been spending a fair amount of time around environment and climate change, it's been an eye-opener, is David Wallace Wells's book, The Uninhab- Uninhabitable Earth. Mm. I'm sure many saw his piece um, in the magazine, um, which got a lot of attention, uh, and on the heels of it, he published the book, and it so happens that we had him actually as one of our guest speakers mm. for our own program, which is called Talks at GS, where we bring in thought leaders on very topical um, you know, issues. And um, he makes an incredibly compelling and honest assessment mm. on climate change. Mm-hmm. And uh, not to bring everybody on a downer, but how much worse it is than we all anticipate. Um, And what I found in particular um, illuminating for me is how interlinked and pervasive pervasive the consequences are or will be, whether it's climate conflicts um, and the war due to drought and food shortages, immigration issues, which is, of course, already top of mind for many, and the displacement. And then even things like heat-related deaths um, and lack of labor productivity, in addition to significant economic impacts. Um, And I'm sure many have heard this before, but I think it's worth underscoring uh, that our generation within the last few decades really brought the earth to this uh, catastrophe. Um, And, you know, we do have the next decade where we can actually take responsibility and step up and take greater action Mm -hmm. and potentially be able to change um, the course of where we're headed, which is geared towards more the four degree world than the well below two degree world that, um, you know, IPCC and the scientists have come out and make the made the case for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and I think, again, the, the magnitude of the challenge, the urgency of the challenge, um, is yet another reminder of the value of harnessing every single tool that we have at our disposal to, to act accordingly. So, Kyunga, thank you again for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you in uh, about a month's time at an upcoming RFF meeting. And it's been great talking with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.